So good evening, Dharma friends. Can you all hear me? So to go. So tonight I want to talk about one of my very favorite suttas in, uh, in Buddhism. It's actually called the uh, Vipalasa Sutta, and it's in the Anguttara Nikaya. And I'm just going to read it to you. These four, O yogis, are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there is no self, sensing the, seeing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceived with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara. Those people are far from safety. They are beings that go on flowing, going again from birth to death. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there's suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. It's a pretty short sutta, and it's really fundamental to how we are um, practicing to train our minds. You know, one of the things I'm sure that you all have experienced meditating for such a long time is just how much you know, mindfulness gets stronger and stronger and you see the subtleties of things. You know, things that might have been hardly uh, noticed by you uh, three and a half weeks ago, all of a sudden become really big deals. You know, the slightest bit of uh, getting perturbed or whatever can really just make us very reactive. So we're seeing much more clearly you know, what some of these root fallacies of mind are. So uh, these distortions of perception are rooted, according to the Buddha, in something called avijja. Avijja, we all have avijja. It's the first link in the uh, wheel of dependent origination, ignorance. So our misperceptions are based on really a deep-seated ignorance. And it's not that we ourselves are flawed at all. It's just that our perception and our thoughts and our views get totally, uh, they get, um, you know, mixed up by our inability to really see reality clearly. And this avijja, this ignorance is what uh, pre- prevents us from seeing clearly. So these distortions are called vipalasa. 
I just love that term. I'm so into the vipalasas. So what are some of the meanings of that term? And uh, I like that, you know, when we get a poly term, you can always look up, you know, multiple uh, interpretations of that. And, you know, I think various of them will stick at a particular time in our actual experience. And that's what we want. In fact, I'm hoping that, you know, what I'm saying you, to you right now and this evening, I would hope that you would just not worry about grokking it conceptually. Just let it land in your, in your intuitive awareness and see what that cooks up. So don't worry about remembering all these terms at all. But here are some of the terms for vipalasa or distortions. A hallucination, a delusion, an erroneous observation, an illusion, a phantom, a mirage, a fantasy, bias, exaggeration, a lie, misinterpretation, baloney, <laughs> contortion, coloring, slant, smoke, and most fundamentally, story. So vipalasas have to do with perceptions. And I just want to remind us what we know about where, you know, what sense stores we have and where we can actually have misperceptions. So our perceptions have the function to recognize things. And we have perceptions at six sense doors. We have perception of forms or seeing, perceptions of sounds, of smell, of taste, perceptions associated with just sensations in the body, and then the perceptions of mental objects, those things that are just traveling through our awareness, you know, in our mind and heart that we see. So uh, the Buddha taught that there were, in addition to these uh, four very specific perceptions, that these perceptions, these misperceptions happen at three levels of, uh, three kind of analytic levels. And uh, the first analytic level, or the first level of the misperception, is a uh, misperception of, or a distortion of perception. So, uh, for example, the, you know, the, a common example of that is you're walking along a path here at Spirit Rock and there's a wiggly stick on the path and you think it's a snake. And, you know, the fact that you have misperceived it as a snake, the next thing that happens is you have all of these memories, these thoughts about what you know about snakes. Are there poisonous snakes in California? What's going on in Woodacre? You would, thought, you would have thought that, you know, uh, Spirit Rock would have cleared out all their snakes. Just, you know, you have a proliferation of thoughts about uh, this object that you saw. So that's 
uh, distortion of perception and distortion of thought. And then the highest level of distortion is a distortion of view. And that's where you get into uh, bigger concepts that we all hold to be absolutely true. This is where all of our views come from. And, you know, I know the teachers, uh, Brian has talked a lot about views and, you know, everyone has talked about um, just, you know, how views are can be pretty dangerous and partly because they're really most often, in fact, if you're not an enlightened person, they, your views are uh, informed by a vipalasis, by uh, misperceptions and hallucinations. So, so the distortions of view are the most difficult, uh, you know, levels to really deal with and you know, are the causes of some of the, you know, worst conditions in our social environment. You know, sexism and racism and homophobia and, you know, the lack of care for, lack of compassion for poor people or just a lot of those views are, you know, are informed by a misunderstanding of really how we're all working together. Maybe a total denial of climate change would be a good example of a a distortion of view. So what are the causes of of these hallucinations? And I'm sure that you have uh, recognized that, you know, the uh, causes of the hallucination are associated with the three characteristics or the three... uh, marks of existence that are uh, very, very often difficult for us to see without a lot of clear mindfulness. And those are that, um, and these hallucinations are really feed, they water the attachments that we have for the, uh, for the world. We become attached because we forget things have a changing nature. You know, we see a person or, you know, an object and not realizing that it's changing as we're looking at it, we become attached to an idea of it. We become attached because we don't see the basic unsatisfactoriness of things. You know, the, um, you know, the additional serving of food that just makes us sleepy later or, um, Actually, I have a really great quote about that. Oh, I guess I left it in the in the teacher room, but it was a quote about how um, we get attached to uh, one man was actually talking about his attachment to electronic gadgets. And you know, as soon as the new electronic gadget comes out, we have to have one. I have an iPhone 6, one of those big ones. And actually, while I was here, I, um, back at my job before I came here, I thought to myself, I have to have one of those new Kindles, a Kindle Voyage. And, you know, first I got, you know, the first week I was here, I got an Amazon package with all my little, you know, it was the uh, screensaver and the plug-in for the... 
Kindle Voyager, and I was so happy. I was going to get this Kindle Voyage, and it was just really going to make me happy. And I was talking to the teachers about it, and Sally was going, well, don't you already have a reader? And I said, yeah, well, I have an iPad mini. She goes, well, you know, that's better than a Kindle. And I said, oh, no, Sally. I am sure that when I get this Kindle, I am going to have the entire Buddhist, every single Buddhist sutta and commentary is going to be on this Kindle, and I'm going to read it constantly. I had all these thoughts, you know, (laughs) of how this Kindle was going to fulfill my life. (laughs) But then I got the Kindle. I mean, it's the new Kindle. It's a voyage. And... (laughs) And you would have assumed everything I read told me that if I got it, I was going to be really happy, right? (laughs) And then I got it, and I was, you know, moving. I have, you know, probably um, five, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know what a lot of gig is, but I have pages and pages and books and books, Buddhist books and books and pages and pages. And I went to move them all onto this new Kindle. So I hooked it up, you know, I read how to do it, I hooked it up. And I moved, you know, probably a hundred Buddhist books, including the suttas, onto this Kindle. And I was all excited to start reading, to start becoming the Buddhist scholar that I know is trapped inside me and wants to come out. (laughs) And so I turned it on and pulled up the first book, and the printing was like this big. You know, I needed a magnifying glass to read it. (laughs) So I brought it into the uh, teacher room, and I'm going, what's up with this Kindle? (laughs) I thought it was going to make me happy. And Sally said, you know, I told you the iPod (laughs) mini. (laughs) And that was an excellent, direct experience of that technology is really not doing it for me. <laughs> and that was a vipalasa. It started with the misperception of the Kindle. Oh my God, that is like the newest, latest thing. You know, the distortion of thought. Oh, I have to have this. It's going to make me a Buddhist scholar. A distortion of view. Electronics make you happy. And... Uh, I was sadly shown the truth of it. Now I have this Kindle. (laughs) And I just, you know, it turns out that in order to read anything on the Kindle, you actually have to get material that was made for a Kindle. That's where they get you, isn't it? (laughs) So I was... uh, you know, they had a, they have a conception. Their uh, vipalasa distorted view is that extracting resources out of everybody for stuff that they may or may not need would make them happy. So there's distorted view all around. So um, there's other ways to talk about what the uh, what the hallucinations are, I, and the, these are ways that I think it might have been Sayadaw Tejaniya, but it's from a handout that I got from Steve Armstrong. So you can tell me if it's Sayadaw or not. Yeah. 
So this one way of interpretation, uh, this one feeling that we get that we probably often don't even realize we're having is this experience that I'm having now, it's going to last forever. Did you ever get that feeling when you're sitting or just around in life? And that is not seeing clearly into impermanence or anicca. The second one is, in order for this experience to be okay, it should be pleasant. Just denying the inherent unsatisfactoriness of any conditioned thing. And then, I am making this happen, or this is happening to me. Just thinking that uh, we are either so powerful and have so much control, or have, you know, totally the opposite, have absolutely uh, unable to bring anything together, that, you know, this situation that we're in right now that is due to multiple causes and conditions, somehow can just be attributed, attributed to my own, uh, my own power or my own lack of power in the world. And these interpretations of our experience are really the cause for uh, continued Karma, you know, it produces karma when we see things that way. And by karma, I just mean these mental habit patterns, you know, that influence how we experience the world. So before I get to the good news of how we can eradicate vipalasas, I want to talk about a few other very common misperceptions. Uh, This comes from psychology, but I think, you know, I think in part they're related to our um, evolutionary psychology, our evolutionary brain that Sally talks so uh, eloquently about. The first one is all or nothing thinking, dichotomous thinking. You know, a person that we're dealing with that we hardly even know, probably you have experienced this Uh, with uh, yogis that you might have just caught out of the corner of your eye in the last month. I don't know if any of you have developed Vipassana romances or Vipassana vendettas. And, you know, that's usually all or nothing thinking. That this object of my desire is just, has every quality that I could ever want in a person. Or this uh, Vipassana uh, vendetta that I have because they didn't see me, you know, about to enter this side of the food line and stepped in front of me. You know, their entire existence is suspect. (laughs) What are they even doing here? You know, all or nothing uh, thinking. And then another one is exaggeration or catastrophizing. You know, I ran out of um, 
I ran out of uh, jerky like a week and a half into the retreat, and it's like, wow, I'm in trouble. That's going to have a major impact on my experience here. And you know what I find so interesting about these things is that we think that uh, our mental state, that Bonnie is having all or nothing thinking and Bonnie is having catastrophizing or exaggeration. And I've come to think of it or to understand it in the exact opposite way. All or nothing thinking is having a Bonnie. Catastrophizing is having a Bonnie. And when you think about it, all of those mental states create a different identity for us, don't they? The, uh, the Vipassana romance that's created, I mean, the Bonnie that's created through the Vipassana romance is someone who thrives in relationships and knows that that would be really satisfying. And, you know, there's all of these Uh, identities or concepts that are associated with that particular strong mental factor. And then the next minute when I'm having a, you know, delusion of grandeur about, you know, my place in the world or, you know, my ability to sit up here, it's creating another Bonnie, you know, or my doubt about why am I sitting up here creates another Bonnie. All of those really strong delusions, uh, distortions, hallucinations create a different identity for me. And, you know, that in part explains how we're just constantly changing. Another uh, common cognitive distortion is mind reading. You know, thinking that we understand what a person is saying, what the intention is, and uh, what impact they were hoping to have. Or, uh, or even for us, you know, having a particular intention when we do something or say something, and then thinking that that intention should absolutely inform what the impact of it is. Have you ever had the experience where, uh, you know, your intention, your thought was to do something really nice for your family, and you did it, and it turns out, wow, they thought that that was really a bad thing that you did. So, you know, our intentions can be, are absolutely separate from, you know, the uh, impact that it has on anybody around us. You know, for example, you know, our use of fossil fuels. How many of us intend to contribute to climate change? None of us want to do that. I mean, and, you know, it's a distortion of view to think that our behavior doesn't contribute to that. I guess that would be an example of minimization, which is the next common, common cognitive bias. And then, you know, before I get to the good news, I, you know, what I've seen in myself is these, um, you know, they're usually negative, uh, negative uh, ideas of myself or uh, 
notions that I have of who Bonnie is that, um, you know, it's really excellent. I mean, that's what we're trying to do with our mindfulness is to really see clearly what these habitual habit patterns are that are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion, rooted in these, um, in these uh, misperceptions and these distortions. So I wanted to, I actually found a list of common negative feelings. And I realized that when we can feel these, when these come up, they not only feel, you know, what they are is actually just mental objects floating through awareness that we could perceive and say, wow, that's interesting. You know, I wonder what the cause and condition of that was. You can see it arising. And if you see it clearly, oftentimes it'll self-liberate and go. But because we don't see them as mental objects or something separate from ourselves, it's very hard for us to see them clearly so we misperceive them. And I just wanted to name a few of them because I have felt, you know, many of these I have taken as my identity. So one is ashamed. Have you ever felt ashamed about something? And, you know, in that moment, ashamed creates a body that is just full of shame. And when you feel that, you know, it's like we feel like that's who Bonnie is. That's her core root characteristic. When it, you know, was something that arose because of causes and conditions and will subsequently leave as well because it is subject to... Um, you know, the uh, characteristic of being impermanent. And we feel, you know, it doesn't often feel good, so we think that we absolutely shouldn't have it. It's wrong, it's bad. The ashamed Bonnie is, there's something wrong with her. You know, and actually, to think about it, I had this... um, You know, you can often have the experience, and I've had this experience where I thought that I felt a certain way about a person, but then I would be practicing for a while, you know, just practicing this mindfulness, practicing this compassion practice, and I would see that person, and rather than just have this, like, negative evaluation of actually putting them in a box, just seeing them would be uh, the... would be the... uh, the uh, cause for compassion to arise in me and warmth to arise in me. It's so interesting that, you know, and it could have been that if I had really thought, I just, you know, I know who this person is and they're never going to change and they're like this and they're very rooted in their delusion. If I had really hung on to that and known and, you know, expected that, I don't know if compassion and a feeling of connectedness would have arisen me in that moment. So, you know, that's another reason for us to really uh, take a good look at these distortions of perception. And, you know, I love the Mahayana tradition actually has excellent advice for dealing with misperceptions. And they're always drumming into us, we should always have the don't know mind. Because, you know, the truth is, because things are changing so quickly and we don't know what Bonnie is showing up at any moment, you know, driven by whatever delusion is creating my identity in that moment, we really don't know what's showing up. 
And I think it gives the biggest space for, you know, actually seeing what is there in the moment. So I want to name some of these other negative feelings that we often take as root identities. So ashamed, beaten down, cut down, criticized, dehumanized, disrespected, embarrassed, humiliated, inferior, invalidated, lectured to. Do you all feel lectured to right now? (laughs) You could though, right? I mean, if you didn't like me, there's a good chance that you would see me and think, oh my, here we go. She's going to give us a Dharma talk. And it could, you know, create this sense of lectured to, could create and then insert your name there. Offended, put down. Issues of freedom and control, we feel an identity of inhibited. People just won't let me be myself. Obligated, you know, boy, I've got an elder mother. I've got a partner who's sick. I really have a lot of obligations here. We feel powerless, pressured, restricted, trapped. Think of one area in your life that you might feel trapped. And then think about the identity that that develops. It's a very unique identity, probably compared to some of the other ones that you hold. Uh, connect, uh, related to love or connection, you might have an identity of being abandoned, alone, brushed off, disapproved of, ignored, of being insignificant. I think it's a significant point for um, people as they get older to realize that we don't have the, you know, sexual appeal that we had at a younger age. And many of us might remember when we saw that slipping. It was like, wow, this is a whole new identity going on here. It's interesting. We become invisible in a certain ways left out or lonely, neglected and rejected, uncared about. Right now I'm working with this identity of being a caretaker. You know, I've got all of these different baskets where I have to be kind of in charge. And that's kind of a pain in the behind to be in charge all the time. And it, you know, for me, it's creating this sense of always having to take care and watch out. And that creates, that feeling of that creates a certain body of maybe being victimized or something when that feeling arises. Uh, Around areas of justice or truth, we could be falsely accused or guilt-tripped. You know, many, you know, there are instances in our cultures we know that, you know, there is uh, vipa losses, uh, distortions of perception, 
And because of what you look like, you're much more likely to be interrogated by the police, to be followed around, and, you know, probably to be shot. You know, that's definitely a distortion of perception. Around safety, there's issues of being abused, attacked. You know, it might make us defensive, insecure, intimidated. We might become overprotected in relation to that, threatened, underprotected or unsafe. I'm wondering if any of these are landing on any of you. Is there any sense of any of that? And then issues of trust we see. Are we cynical? When, our, when cynicism arises, what Bonnie does that create? That's so interesting. I have a situation where I work that, you know, I have opinions about who works really hard and who doesn't. And when that arises, I know that creates a different body. You know, that's floating around, checking on everybody's productivity levels. While I'm over here giving a talk at Spirit Rock. (laughs) (laughs) You know, feelings of being untrusted or untrusting. So these are all, you know, connected to Avija to our sense of to our sense of um, just misunderstanding the nature of things because if we really understood uh, that our experience doesn't have to feel good to be okay if we understood that there's a range of what our experience is going to feel like and that you know if we understood or if the understanding arose that we could open to whatever experience was conditioned in this moment, you know, uh, an experience that at this moment we have absolutely no control over. If we had a sense of the strength and resiliency of awareness and of mindfulness, and if our mindfulness was strong enough, it wouldn't matter what was arising because we could hold it, you know, between that denial and that obsession and between the um, uh, repression and the uh, just jumping on the bandwagon. And actually, um, according to Analyo, that wonderful monk, you know, that's his, one of his interpretations of what mindfulness lends to us, it's wonderful. What it does is it deconditions habitual responses to sense objects. You know, we know, for example, uh, some people are using meta-meditation to reduce inherent bias towards certain people. There is one study that sending, you know, for uh, medical care providers, you know, there's some issues with medical care providers treating patients differently or prescribing different things. And, you know, based on race, ethnicity, and age, and insurance coverage, and things like that. And after, you know, doing metta meditation or sending metta to these categories where uh, the providers had some misperceptions. 
it actually showed an increase in better treatment and better medical care. So that's one example of how our practice really is deconditioning the habitual responses to things when we can see clearly the three characteristics in what we're looking at. When we can see that, you know, that piece of cake or that Kindle is not doing it for me. You know, maybe, you know, I'm going to extract the wisdom out of that. I'm going to see my disappointment. I'm going to see more clearly my um, expectations that this was going to make me the best scholar ever. And then the next time I'm prompted to buy something, maybe I won't do it. I'm hoping I won't. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I'm sure many of you, uh, some of you are leaving soon, and you might have a lot of uh, views about what it's going to be like when you get home. You know, wow, I am just going to be so mellow and so loving. <laughs> or it could be that you have a view that my mindfulness is so strong, people are going to be bugging me right and left. Or you might have the view, um, people are going to be so interested in what my experience is, I'm going to blow them away with my stories. And then you might find out that people will ask you, how was your retreat? And even before you finish saying something, they change the subject. <laughs> that happens a fair amount. <laughs> or we could have some expectations of what this m month two is going to be like. Right? Month one was like this. Month two is going to be like that. You know, I heard from yogis that I saw while I was here that their expectations of what this month was going to be like are actually quite different than what they expected. So what does this tell us? If we can see at any moment, you can take any thought or idea, any perception, any thought, any view that you have, and you could see the holes in it. What does this tell, what does this tell us about practice? Is practice really, you know, 30 minutes on the cushion in the morning? Is that really going to help us uh, not create the karma that is going to impact, you know, us going forward? When I realized the extent of my vipalasas, of my distortions, I all of a sudden realized that practice is 24-7. It really is, it, you know, it is any time that we are interacting with both ourselves internally and the outside world, you know. For me, it's important to at least, um, you know, look closely about what I am assuming about this moment and to uh, bring in, to have arise the wisdom of the don't know mind. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, uh, Peter Senge, some of the leadership gurus actually in organizations will tell you that. They will tell you that one of the marks of an excellent leader is going down the ladder of inference. And, you know, the business world uh, takes this view, and Peter Senge got this, I'm sure, from Buddhism. 
you know, he has this level of inference where we're taking in sense data. But because of our, you know, of our views, we're only taking, we're not taking in all the data, we're only taking in certain of the data, right? For example, maybe somebody came to see me for an interview, and rather than listening patiently, I had an idea come up and I blurted it out. And you might have thought, oh, wow, she's not listening to me. (laughs) And then, you know, the thought might come up, well, I think... You know, uh, the thoughts might come up, well, the teachers in training, you know, they have really more work to do. And then this view would come up, I only want to see senior teachers when I go on retreat. You know, this whole um, pathway based on one observation rather than maybe the entire experience of me or anybody else that you're seeing. Yeah, we can think about that. You know, what one perception has totally colored an entire view in our life. You know, one perception of being either favored or not favored in a particular environment that has informed our entire view of that environment. So for me, seeing this, seeing, you know, for me, 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 all of the bonnies that are created by these vipalasas, you know, these bonnies that are not necessarily um, uh, intentioned by right view or right action, you know, it makes me want to just look more closely what's happening in the moment. And like I said, it makes me feel that practice is 24-7, you know, in order to just dampen down the karma that's produced, produced by not seeing what we're intentioned in the moment, what is really fueling the intention in the moment. And then it makes, you know, another thing that seeing the vipalasas makes, uh, you know, a deeper reliance on the entire Eightfold Path arise, not just on right mindfulness, not not just on a you know meditate meditation practice to realize that you know right view uh, you know looking clearly and seeing the four noble truths seeing that clearly is so important in our twenty four seven practice and seeing you know sila seeing you know uh, right action and right speech and right. Speech, right, action, and right. Livelihood, right. Who said that? (laughs) You know, making sure that, or trying to make sure that my intentions for my work and my intentions in my speech are informed by that perspective. And then, of course, right, uh, you know, mindfulness, right, concentration, right, mental training with right effort. And particularly, you know, uh, on a, on the twenty four seven practice of uh, bringing mindfulness to as much as I can of you know definitely hooking into those four right efforts is my intention in this moment going to lead to happiness or not is my intention in this moment going to lead to suffering for others and myself or not you know is a really important uh, practice for me seeing just over and over again the level of vipalasas in my mind.
So I guess that's all I wanted to talk about. I love the Vipalasa Sutta and I love the Dharma. Let's sit for a second. May all beings see clearly into their distortions of perception, distortions of thought, and distortions of view. May all beings see clearly into reality, into anicca, dukkha, and anatta. May all beings awaken. (laughs) 